Well, good morning. It is good to be back with you today. Um, missed you last week. I gathered with some uh, believers uh, a long way from here, but my heart was with you. And uh, it's good to be back. I thank those guys who, who filled in for us uh, last week. Just really appreciate um, all of them at each campus and uh, what they did to deliver God's word to you last week. Uh, but it's good to be back. I fought hard yesterday to get back here to be with you. And I'm grateful today that um, God let that happen. I want to welcome you to what we're calling Blueprint. Uh, Blueprint is a study of the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is a book of the Bible that the Apostle Paul writes to a young man that is like a son to him. That's how he sees Timothy. Timothy is a, a young pastor of a church in a place called Ephesus. And the reason we call it Blueprint is because this, this letter that Paul writes to Timothy is like a guide. It's like a pattern. It's like a, a structure that he's giving them for how the church can operate in a healthy way. I have been looking forward to sharing this part of the text with you. And the reason is because I think what we're talking about today is rare. When we talk about actions in our life as Jesus followers, uh, actions that help our heart stay in a posture that we can hear and we can see and we can follow Jesus, when we talk about those actions in our life, we usually talk about, okay, what do we need to do in order to be in the Bible more? What do we, what do we need to do to be reading the Bible on a regular basis? Uh, what do we need to be doing in order to, to pray with more consistency? We don't talk about what we're going to talk about today. I think it's rare, and I'm excited to share it with you. Let me show you what I'm talking about. First Timothy, we've arrived in chapter 4. Here's what it says, First Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. The Spirit clearly says. Now what we believe Scripture teaches us about Scripture is that all of Scripture is breathed by the Spirit of God. All scripture inspired by him. But this little phrase, the, the spirit clearly says, it's, it's a phrase that sometimes in Paul's day a prophet would use to say, hey, what you're about to hear, this is a message from God. And so I think what Paul's doing here is he's just giving us a reminder of saying, you better listen, because this is God talking here. What does he say? The spirit clearly says, that in latter times, some will abandon the faith. Latter times, what is that? Well, latter times is a little phrase that's used to describe usually the period of time between the resurrection of Jesus and the return of Jesus. In other words, we live in the latter times. And so what we're being reminded of here by the Spirit of God is that people have been leaving the faith since the beginning of faith. Ever since people could believe, there have been those who walk away. And he says they're gonna continue to do that until Jesus comes back. Now a few weeks ago, uh, we talked about the fact that sometimes people will leave you 
And when people leave you, I mean, we, we talked about how hard that is to deal with and how it feels so personal. I think one of the ways that can help us deal with moments like that is to be reminded, and that's what the Spirit is reminding us right now. People have been walking away from Jesus a lot longer than they've ever walked away from you or me. He says, between the resurrection and the return of Jesus, there will be those who walk away from him. He pulls back the curtain now, and he says, I want you to understand why. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. In other words, he says, on the surface, you and I look at this thing and we go, wow, what happened to them in their faith? He says, I want you to understand there's something really powerful attached to what just happened to them. There is a spiritual battle going on in the background. And in this series, we've even talked about that spiritual war. But watch this, verse two. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. So Paul says people at times are going to walk away from the faith. When they walk away from the faith, I want you to understand this is not just a surface deal, but something deeper going on. There's a spiritual battle. But then he says, but I want you to understand the instruments that the enemy uses to do that. What does he use to do that? He uses hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared with a hot iron. Wouldn't it be nice if all the hypocritical liars in the world were required to wear a lanyard, you know, like a lanyard that says, hey, I'm a liar. I mean, wouldn't that make it just a whole lot easier? All the hypocritical liars got to wear a lanyard so that you can identify, hey, this is somebody you want to steer clear of. Well, Paul knows that all the liars don't wear lanyards, but there are some characteristics that you can look for, and he gives us a couple of them. Here's the first question he says we can ask. Are they sincere? Hypocritical liars. The word hypocrite, I mean, it, it is the word that, 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 you know, we are accustomed to understanding somebody who appears to be something that they're really not. The word hypocrite in Paul's day would often be attached to an actor, like an actor on a stage who would, who would provide a performance. They appear to be something that they're really not. They wear a mask. They are an actor. But when you move that into the spiritual realm, when you move that into a faith realm, he says you realize they are not sincere. These people who are spreading lies, sometimes their words will reveal the fact that they are liars. They're not sincere. Sometimes their actions will reveal that they are liars. They'll say one thing and they'll do another. Sometimes their lack of actions will reveal that they are just hypocritical, insincere liars. You ever heard somebody uh, trying to sell you something and there's just something about it where you go, eh, there's just not anything behind what they're saying. I don't believe them. It's sincerity. There's an old story about the 
the Scottish philosopher who was also an atheist. His name was David Hume. And one day, this Scottish philosopher slash atheist was recognized in a crowd of people who had gathered to hear a man by the name of George Whitfield preach. Now, George Whitfield is a famous pastor of days gone by. He's connected to what was called the first great awakening. I mean, well known. Here is David Hume in this crowd, and somebody recognized him. And, and they approached him, and they said, what are you doing here? I, I didn't think you believed the gospel. To which Hume replied, I don't. But as he nodded toward Whitfield, he said, but he does. He does. One of those moments where we are reminded that sincerity matters when you are proclaiming truth that you want somebody else to embrace now, now, don't get me wrong, sincerity doesn't trump truth because you can be insincerely wrong, right? I mean, you can be sincerely wrong. It doesn't trump truth, but sincerity matters. And, and Paul says, look, I, I want you to know that there are people who will lie to you. There are people who are going to move you down a path that moves you away from your faith. Sincerity is one of the things that you can look for. Since I was with you last, um, I've traveled a few miles. Uh, we spent some time um, doing some work in Taiwan, but the farthest distance that I went um, was a place called Myanmar. Um, a trip to Myanmar and back is, I don't know, somewhere around 19,000 miles, give or take uh, a few. It's, it's, a, it's a long way from here. Um, Myanmar, uh, at one time, uh, it was called Burma. Maybe you recognize it as that. And the work that we're doing in Myanmar is really right down in the southern tip. And so if we blow that up a little bit, I think we can see it. There we go. Well, you get the idea. Rangoon is the capital, so that's where the red dot is. Tungu, to the north, is where the largest Project Nick shelter exists. Um, Project Nick for us as Heart of Life is a, is a mission that we have to see orphans in different places of the world cared for. There are 115 orphans in Tongu who are, who are fed and clothed and cared for and taught about Jesus. That has been the biggest shelter um, that we have in Project Nick. But now Myanmar also holds the newest shelter. And it is in this little place called Labuda. Now, Kathmandu is one of the other places where we have a shelter. And up until now, um, that was my son's favorite name. I mean, because Kathmandu is just a cool place. But now Labuda is our favorite name because it actually has the word but in it, right? And so <laughs> if you are 10 years old, it doesn't get any better than that as a boy. It's, it's, it's so that, that is Labuda is actually how, how you say it though. And I realize that from here to here doesn't look very far, but it is. It is about uh, a seven hour journey by taxi. Um, the roads are incredibly rough. You have to cross rivers on ferries and all kinds of good stuff. But at the end of that journey, 
I met a pastor by the name of Tun Tun Oo. Isn't that a great name? Tun Tun Oo. And he leads the newest Project Nick shelter in Labuda, Myanmar. It's about 30 kids. Now, the shelter's not finished yet. Um, they are in a rainy season. And when I say rainy season, we can relate to that this year in terms of the spring. And you know, but you, you got to multiply that by times 10 and everything is underwater. There's just water everywhere. And so the, the construction of the actual shelter that, that we're building there isn't finished, but they've got 30 kids in another location that for temporarily they're being able to take care of them. And as soon as the rain stops, shelter will be finished and they'll be able to, to move in. There is one factor that I've learned being in Labuda, talking to Pastor Tuntun, that has changed my perspective on him and what he's doing there. In the city of Labuda, that is tens and tens of thousands of people, there are 41 Buddhist temples. 41 Buddhist temples. There is one Christian church that Pastor Tuntun leads. And so the image for me now for Labuda, it looks like this. This is my number. The ratio is one to 41. I think we got them. I think we got them. And you know why I think we got them? Because there is one man who lives in Labuda in Myanmar who believes the gospel of Jesus Christ with all of his heart. He knows what the truth is. And not only does he know what the truth is, but he lives it with sincerity. He speaks it from his mouth. He declares the good news of a Jesus who died and rose again. He declares a good news uh, that, that says you don't earn your way into heaven. It is by grace through faith in this Jesus who has done it. But you know what? There is a sincerity in Pastor Tuntun that he also puts actions to his words. Actions like the fact that he has gathered 30 children in the city of Labuda who do not have parents, nobody to care for them. And in the name of Jesus, he is feeding and clothing and loving and declaring such a gospel into their lives. He is a man who knows the truth and he is a man who lives it with sincerity. One to 41, I think we got him. You need to pray for Pastor Tuntun. You need to pray for him and pray for his family and pray for those children. Paul reminds Timothy when you're looking for the right people, sincerity, you look for it. But not just sincerity, he says. He says the second question we want to ask is, are they sensitive? Are they sensitive? And by, what we mean by that is Paul said their consciences, these liars, their consciences have been seared with a hot iron. That's quite an image. Well, it's because the word that describes this phrase is the word from which we get our word cauterize. 
right? You cauterize something, you think about a medical process where what do you do? You sear it to seal it, right? You sear it in order to seal it. But once you seal it, in that process, it becomes desensitized. You can't feel it. Once it's burned, you can't feel it. And he says, that's what the hearts of these people are like. Let's play with this metaphor a little bit. You ever noticed when somebody gets burned by somebody else in life, how suddenly the one who's been injured can become a little desensitized to that person? It's kind of the fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. How do you do that? Well, you gotta, you gotta coach your heart. You gotta sear it in order to seal it. You gotta build some walls. You, you gotta shelter yourself, barrier up, so that nothing else can ever get through to hurt you again. But real Jesus followers, Paul says, they are sensitive, their heart open, both to God and to those that he's made in his image, people. You cannot be both hardened and closed off toward other people and yet be sensitive and open to God. And so Paul says, look, there are liars who will lead you down a path that leads to shipwreck of your faith. But you are looking for people. You are looking for people who are sincere, people whose words and actions match, right? There is a consistency to the truth of God. You're looking for a sensitivity. People who even when they're hurt are willing to forgive, they're willing to continue to love. You are looking for these characteristics. If the answer to either of these questions is no, then do not follow their teaching because it will lead to a shipwreck of your faith. Okay, so Paul has set us up with these people that leads us to the question, what in the world are they teaching? Right, what is this, what is this horrible, dangerous, demonic teaching that the Spirit of God is warning us against stay away from? What is it? Verse three gives us the answer. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. Okay, wait a minute. Is that what you expected? That's not what I expected. When he's describing these horrible teachings, I'm expecting him to say something like, they are denying the deity of Christ. They are denying that Jesus is God or they are denying the resurrection. Celibacy and veganism? Like, really? Well, the issue, though, is really subtle. But it is so dangerous. It's the reason that Paul is dealing with this in such, with such a heavy hand. Because I want us to understand, we know there are other places where Paul tells people, it's okay to get married. And we know that there are other places in scripture where he talks about it, it's okay to eat food. So what's going on here? Well, what's going on here is not really about their abstinence. What's going on here is really an attempt 
to teach something that I would call salvation by subtraction. Not salvation by grace. That's what the Bible teaches us. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus, but salvation by subtraction. In other words, this is why it was so dangerous in Ephesus. It wasn't just an outright denial of the gospel. Somebody's not standing up saying, hey, Jesus did not die for your sin. Jesus did not rise from the dead. Jesus is not God. Nobody's standing up saying that. It's not an outright denial of the gospel, but it is a teaching that obscures the gospel. And when you start attaching laws and regulations and rules to the gospel, it becomes a perversion of the good news of God. It becomes a hindrance of seeing the progress and the power of the gospel go forward. And I'm telling you, I think the reason this is so dear to my heart is because this has been happening ever since the good news became the good news. People who start trying to declare a salvation by subtraction. It's happened throughout history. There, there have been times that, that people will, let's say they will rediscover an old um, a doctrine. Right, Something that's been there all along in Scripture, but all of a sudden it just becomes apparent to them as they're reading Scripture, or maybe they jump on a good cause, or maybe they start a new spiritual discipline. It's somebody who is committing to following Christ in a specific area, and all that's good. But here's the issue. When they decide that that's not just good for them, but they start demanding that other people in the faith community start to adopt also those secondary practices. And then that person becomes the chief fruit inspector judging as to whether or not others are real in their faith. That's when it becomes a problem, right? If you don't get up before dawn and pray for an hour before the sun comes up, then your, your faith is not what it needs to be. If, if you don't read the Bible plan that I read, then, then you're, not really, you're not really where your faith needs to be. If you're not memorizing scripture to the level that I'm memorizing scripture, then, then your faith is not real. If you are not speaking in tongues, if you are not slain in the spirit, if you, I mean, people have been adding all throughout history. If you don't, if you don't, if you don't, then you're not. It is salvation by subtraction where a discipline or an experience is turned into a law, and then that law is attached to the gospel and declared, this is how you believe. When I was growing up, when I was growing up, it, it, it was clear that nobody who was a Jesus follower could ever really take a drink of alcohol and be a Jesus follower. It was impossible. I'm talking about even if you were legal age, da 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 Nobody could ever take a drink of alcohol and actually be a follower of Jesus. Well, where'd, where'd we get that? The Bible talks about drunkenness, it does. But somebody just took a rule that perhaps they needed to live by. 
and applied it to an entire faith community and said, if you don't live like this, then you cannot be. There was a period of time in my life growing up where you couldn't dance with your girlfriend and be a real follower of Jesus. You couldn't. I'm talking about, I'm not talking about somebody married and got a girlfriend. I'm talking about somebody not married, got a girlfriend. You, you just couldn't dance and be a real follower of Jesus. Some of you are like, you're kidding. I'm not kidding. I'm saying out, down throughout history, there have always been these things that people have added here and added there. They attach it, a law, a rule, a discipline. That don't get me wrong, it may be something that they very much, there are some people that do not ever need to take a drink of alcohol because of where that takes them to. They need to avoid it. They need to abstain from it. They, they, they don't need to go there. But when you apply that to an entire faith community and equate that with the gospel, then it obscures the picture. And that's what Paul is dealing with in Ephesus. Salvation by subtraction rather than salvation by grace. It obscures, it confuses the gospel and Paul calls it demonic, demonic. So I wanna make sure we understand this because I don't want you to go away from here saying something that I didn't say. Self-denial, self-denial in and of itself most of the time is really good. Most of us need to practice a little more self-denial in numerous areas in our life. That is something that can be very, very good. But when your self-denial suddenly becomes a self-righteousness, because I don't do this, I, I am here in my faith. And because you are still doing this, then you're not here in your faith. When self-denial becomes self-righteousness because it are these laws, these rules, these experiences that I have had that I expect to be a part of you, Paul says, that's demonic. That's demonic. That's not coming from God. That's coming from an enemy who is leading you from your faith. So how does Paul respond to this? Well, here's how he responds in verse 3. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving. God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and all who know the truth. Here's where Paul lands. You won't get married? He says, if you can talk to somebody into marrying you, then get married if you want to, right? God created it. This is good. You can get married. Now, come on. We know when you read scripture, there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes with that. You better not take this lightly. This is something that's for life. There's a whole bunch that goes with it. But to declare that this is not good, he goes, no, this is good. God created this. This is good. He says, and if you like steak, well, it just so happens that God made cows full of them. Because what God made is good. And so if you want to eat a steak, he's like, you should enjoy a steak. Enjoy it. The point is enjoy it. I'm saying there are very few passages in scripture where we see how powerful this is. Most of the time we're telling people don't do this and don't do this and don't do this. And you got to do more of this and more of this. And, and there are very few moments where we're just taught you should enjoy what God has made. And this is attached to your faith. It's attached to your faith. And then he gives us the theology behind it. Verse four, for everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected. 
Everything that God created is good and nothing is to be rejected. When God created, you open the pages of the Bible and in the first chapters, God creates and what is his declaration over his creation? It's all right, it's good. And there are moments he says, it's very good. Isn't it kind of odd that when we tend to tell the biblical story to people, we have a way of tending to skip over the introduction and we get right to the broken part. We do. We kind of skip the introduction most of the time and we go straight to the sin, evil, broken part of the whole story. Now come on, you can't skip that part I mean, that is why we are where we are. This brokenness is real, sin is real, evil is real. Look around you, Th this is real. You gotta help people understand the brokenness. But do we also understand that when God created the world and everything in it, humanity included, God said, this is good. And one of the fundamental things that we get to do as Jesus followers is we get to remind people that as messed up as this is right now, it was not always this way. And praise be to God, one day it won't be this way either. One day it won't be messed up because it was good in the beginning and in the end it's going to be good again forever and ever and ever. And God invites us to become a part of that redemptive process for our world. And one of the ways we get to do it is embracing this understanding that everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected. A part of the false teaching we know from the time period that Paul's dealing with with Timothy is there was a teaching in Ephesus that rose up that basically said matter doesn't matter. Matter doesn't matter. In other words, when we're talking matter, we're talking the physical. The physical, material world is bad. It doesn't matter. What really matters is the immaterial, the, the spiritual world. Well, is that true? No, that's not true but it continues to just creep in century after century, right? There are times where marriage is bad, that's what they're being taught, right? There are times when people, all sex is bad, right? That, that's, that's what gets taught, right? Don't eat certain foods, that's what gets, it just creeps in time after time. But I'm telling you that when God came to us in human form, Jesus, when he moved into the neighborhood, uniting himself with creation, fully God and fully what? Man. God is making a definitive statement. Matter matters. And is stuff broken? Yes. Is this thing flawed? Yes. Are we living up to the potential that we were made for? No. But God's declaration of good is still heard over the noise of sin. And in the end, it will all be good. He says, receive what God has made as good. But there's a condition attached to it. And I think this is so key, all right? I, I think this is where it really lands for us. This is, this is where it gets crazy practical. Because let's read it one more time. 
He says, for everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected. If it is received with, what's the word? What? Thanksgiving. What God created is good, you are to receive it as good. And come on, we're not given a license to sin here. Again, the key is good. There are barriers, there are guardrails that God puts in his word. And so whatever that is that, that you're dealing with, God says when you live within these parameters of what I tell you brings life, this thing is good, it'll bring you life. When you step outside those guardrails, then it doesn't bring you life. But as I've created it, he says, it's good. It's good when you receive it with thanksgiving. Every day, you and I have an option of how we will receive what God gives us this day. Here's our options. We will either receive it with grumbling or we will receive it with gratitude. Every day, God gives us. Every day. We have an option of how we will receive it, Paul says. He says, if you receive it with thanksgiving, you receive it with gratitude, then that's going to lead to a place of faith in your life that's going to strengthen. But if you receive it with grumbling, something else happens, even to the point that people will walk away from the faith. Let's dig into this a little bit. You peel back some layers, all right? You peel back some layers of grumbling. What's underneath that? Why do we grumble? Like, why do we grumble? On any given day, and, and here's, I'm going to try to summarize a little bit. I, typically, we complain or we grumble when there's some kind of expectation that we had for a situation that didn't get met. We expected something, didn't happen, we grumble, right? You pay for a specific service, you give me that service. That's our expectation. And, and we gotta see that what's really behind that kind of thinking is a word called entitlement. Now, when we use the word entitlement in our culture, we tend to attach entitlement to a young generation, honestly, where we, we tend to, to talk about a young generation that feels this entitlement because uh, they may not want to actually work a specific you know, uh, level and yet still feel entitled. But, but really, entitlement is I deserve a certain level of expectation being met because I've earned it. I'm entitled to it. And so here's what I want us to think through. Two statements. Grumbling comes from unrecognized entitlement, while gratitude comes from recognized grace. Let's start with the first one. When we choose to grumble, what we are really doing is giving away the fact that we perceive ourselves to be entitled to something different than what we're receiving because of who we are or because of what we've done 
or because of what somebody's done to us. And that can look a whole lot of different ways on any given day. How about, how about this one? I woke up with the baby yesterday. I ain't doing that again today. Sorry, but I felt like I needed to stir that one up, right? I woke up with the baby yesterday. I ain't doing that again today. Hey, I work hard all day long. When I come home, I just want to be able to sit and, I don't know, binge on Netflix, right? I am, I deserve this. Here's what I do, therefore this is what I deserve. Yeah, I spend most of my life helping people. It's okay if I hate one. I do this, therefore I have the right. I, I am entitled to be able to do this. I, I've been with this company for, for a year now. I've earned a raise. You don't know what I've been through. I don't deserve this kind of treatment. How dare you treat me like this? You don't know who I am. I, 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 will, I will love you, but I don't have to like you. What? It is I deserve. I am entitled. Entitlement is an enemy of grace. And guys, at some point, you got to see why Christianity really can become such an affront to the American dream. Because when a lot of people talk about the American dream, it comes out as getting what I deserve. I am entitled to get what I've worked hard for. I am entitled to get what I deserve. While the gospel of God's grace is all about being given what we could never, ever, ever earn. They are in contrast. Gratitude. A grateful heart appreciates all that has been given because it is a gift. It's a gift. Not earned, Therefore, not, not deserved, it, it's a gift. Let, let, me, let, let me put it this way in terms of where I have walked this last week. What did I do to be born into a family that loves me? Because last week I sat across the table from 30 kids who don't have moms and dads who can look back at them and say, I love you. So who am I? Who am I to be born into a family with a mom and dad who can love me? What did I do? Nothing. It's called a gift. It's called a gift. And when I start recognizing it as a gift, it changes my whole heart and it changes my whole life and how I become grateful, even in the midst of what sometimes is difficult moments. What did I do 
to be born into a country with access to things like education and clean water. When's the last time you thanked God for clean water? Like we don't, because it's just a given. It's just what we, hey, we work hard. We earn, we earn what we have. If we don't have clean water, somebody needs to be fired. You see what I'm, you see what I'm saying? Isn't that wild? I know school's starting this next week for a bunch of you. And I'm, I'm, I tell you this, it's gotten to where when school starts, my heart aches. It does. My heart aches when school starts um, because I, just the little bit that I know of the battle and the fight that our students have to go through on a daily basis in school and all that's attached to that and just people being mean and all the games and garbage that gets played, there's a part of that where my heart aches. So how do you fight that? Well, Paul says, here's how you fight that. He says, every once in a while, students, you got to step back and go, who in the world are you? That you would be born into a country, though, where you are given the privilege to learn, really, as far as you want to learn and gather an education as far as you want to get it so that you can do with your life as much as you can in terms of giving God glory. That kind of changes the perspective, doesn't it? Who are, who are we? Who, who are we? Grumbling shouts, I'm deserving, meet my demands. I'm entitled to this. Gratitude shouts, I am undeserving, and I cannot thank you enough. This should be seen in some practical ways in our lives every day. It really should. From, from going to school, uh, how about, how about just going to, out to eat with your family, right? You, you go out to, to, a, to a restaurant to eat with your family. Um, I don't know, maybe it's, it's, you know those restaurants where um, you know that even before the food food comes, they got that good bread. You know what I'm talking about? They got the good bread and you're like, yeah, we, we like to go there because I mean, even the bread's good. Even the bread at the beginning that they're trying to fill you up, that's just, that's just good. So you get to the restaurant because you're looking forward to the good bread and you take the first bite and the bread is stale. It's stale. But you work through that, it's okay. Because they got that cinnamon butter. You know what I'm talking about? They got that cinnamon butter and you can put cinnamon butter on a stick and it'll taste good, right? And so you're like, the bread is stale but it's okay because with the cinnamon butter it's gonna be all right. And then the waitress says, uh, I'm, I'm sorry but we, we just ran out of cinnamon butter right, right before you guys got here. And then the steak that you ordered, the steak that you ordered, uh, maybe rare, who's rare people in the crowd, yeah? Medium people in the crowd? Okay, good. Most of you are rare or medium. That's good. Because you order rare, you order medium, and it comes back and is well done. Which is code language in the steak word, world for not done well, right? <laughs> and the whole thing is a disaster. How do we respond in that moment? Okay, the food isn't that great. And the service isn't that great. But I did get to go out and eat with my family. 
And I'm sorry, but I'm living life in view of where I've been in recent days. And are we really aware of what percentage of the world has any financial margin in our lives to go out and eat somewhere like a steak? And the answer is most of the time, no, we're not. It's just what, we, it's what we've earned. It's what we deserve. And so if we pay for it, then it must be good. Now, come on, don't miss what I'm saying. You don't have to go back to the restaurant, right? You don't ever have to go back again. If you don't like the food and you don't like the service, then, then you can just choose not to go back. But I'm saying in that moment, in that moment, there is something supernatural that really can happen that you don't, your heart doesn't have to be overwhelmed by the fact that your steak was well done. It can be actually overwhelmed by the fact that, that you have been given and blessed with enough margin that, that you could go out and eat something. And, and for some of us, we need to be uh, of the realization and you had a family to do it with. Some people got family, but they don't even live close enough to them that they can't go out and eat together. And it's just starting to realize gifts from God. These are gifts from God. This is not what I deserve. This, this is, these are gifts from God. It was all, no, trying to get back here yesterday or how, whenever that was, really got comical to me once I figured out what in the world I was walking through the last 36 hours or so in light of what I was talking about today. Because however long ago that was that I tried to board a plane in Taipei to get back to you, I arrived at my two plus hours early at the airport, thank goodness, because it took all of it only to arrive at the gate to realize there is no plane attached to this gate. No plane. Now it's like 10 in the morning, it's not six. People have plenty of time to get a plane ready, right? Unless it's coming from somewhere else. I mean, if it's coming from somewhere else, that's understandable, but no, because in a few minutes, here comes the plane being towed. You know, on one of those little trucks, the truck looks like it's this big and they, they tow the big old plane. It just came from around the corner. It's been here the whole night, but it wasn't ready. It wasn't ready. And we sat there for two hours watching them Due to this plane, what all it needed to be, not like mechanical, like load the plane, clean the plane. It's like we were supposed to leave at 10. Two hours later, we finally get on the plane. An hour later, we're still sitting out on the, uh, not yet on the runway, waiting to take off with no air condition in Taipei. It's like 182 degrees. It's hot. What is going on here? Well, if you leave three hours early, it's likely that when you land in Los Angeles, the connecting flight that you have, ah. but you know what? We, we land, and as we walk out the door, the airline we were on had stuff posted on the door and said, hey, we realize you missed your flight. Here's what we've lined up for you. If you go to this counter, right? You'll be able to get on these planes and, and yeah, it'll be a little later you'll be getting in, but here's what you got. Cool. 
I get to the counter. Liars. <laughs> liars. <laughs> liars. Hypocritical liars. There was no flight booked for us. Yeah, we can put you on this one and send you to this part of the country, but then you're on standby. We got kids. I got to get back. We can send you this way, but oh, yeah, you're going to be on standby. Got to be kidding me. So we fight through that process. Somewhere along the line, I'm, we're toting luggage and all this stuff. My shirt. It, you know how you snag a shirt? You know what I mean? And it was like a golf shirt kind of thing. I like that shirt. And it snagged it. All, you, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm, you know, washing my hands at some point. I look at my shirt, like snags all the way across. It's ruined. It's done. Like, really? I like that shirt. I'll cut this story short and just tell you, even by the time we finally got to Kansas City, I get on that blue bus to take me to my parking spot. This is no lie. I get to the truck. And as I take the key out of my pocket, that key hits the ground, and I think it bounced 14 times. I don't know how many times it bounced, but I am not lying to you. That key bounced to the very center of underneath that truck. I, I, I am not lying to you. At that point, I just started laughing. I just laughed. I could not reach it. I had to get on my belly and crawl underneath the truck. I couldn't throw it that perfectly and make it work. All day long. All day long. Yeah, sure, it was already ruined. Didn't matter. Oh, man. Who am I? Who am I to be blessed with a vehicle to drive? You want to know how crazy it was? If I had been in the car, I'd still probably be trying to get my key because I couldn't fit under it. <laughs> I felt blessed to be in the truck because at least there was enough ground clearance that a guy like me could crawl under. Who, who am I to live in a place where I can get on a plane? Who am I to have a wife and a son who would, who would want to go on that mission with me? Who am I to be able to sit at a table with 30 little boys and girls, no moms and dads, but who are learning to love Jesus? Who am I to shake hands and Embrace a pastor who's willing to take on a city with his faith. After I finally figured out what in the world was going on yesterday in light of what I needed to speak to you about today, by the time I put my head on the pillow last night, I can honestly say I felt grateful. I felt grateful. I wish I could get that every day. <laughs> Maybe I need to preach this for a while just so I can get it. But I wish I could get that every day. And my heart doesn't have to be owned by when things go a little bit sideways and my expectation doesn't get met and here's what I paid for and it didn't get delivered. And 
okay, next time I won't fly that particular airline. But on that day, it didn't have to totally turn me into something that wasn't Jesus-like. You know what I mean? And it's so wild that I don't want you to miss the fact that Paul said this is attached to why sometimes people walk away from the faith. Because their faith, they don't learn how to enjoy all the gifts that God's given. All they do is tend to focus on what's broken. All they tend to do is focus on what's a struggle. All the, and, and yeah, come on, life's not fair. And I'm not belittling. Please, please don't walk out of here today thinking that I am belittling what anybody's going through. I'm not, I'm not trying to play down what the heaviness, the weight of what anybody might feel today in terms of struggle. I'm just saying there is something so supernatural that no matter how heavy that weight is, no matter how big that problem is, there is something so supernatural attached to the heart of God that when we start to recognize his grace, we start to recognize his goodness to us, we can fly above. So who are you? Which of those are you? Are you the one who always feels like you gotta earn salvation, maybe by subtraction, uh, are you the one that out of that has been born this entitled and grumbling spirit that when your strings attached demands aren't met? Or have you come to recognize that all of life is a gift from God? I'm convinced that the church ought to be the most thankful, grateful people in the world. The church should be. Why? Because we believe the story of God's creative power. We believe his son who, who died for us, arose from the dead, has ascended to heaven. He reigns over every inch of creation. We as his people get to grow in giving thanks for his life and his love and his good gifts in our life. For some of you, your faith is weak. And a part of why your faith is weak is because you're not daily seeing from an attitude of gratitude, of being blessed, gifts that God gives you, and so you're not enjoying what God's made. I, I want to invite you to be intentional about changing that. I, I, I know this is weird. This is so weird. What we're accustomed to is if we see somebody, we're like, hey, how can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? What, what can I ask God for, for you, right? That tends to be how we see each other. What if just for a period of time, we started just asking, hey, what can I thank God for in your life today? Right, I know that's bizarre. It's like, nobody's gonna do that. Well, those who wanna live, it, it will be a part of what we go after. Hey, how can I be more thankful every day? How can I recognize God's goodness in my life every day? Can you imagine, what if the church became the picture of what joy and gratitude and celebration looks like in our world? Church ought to throw the best parties, man. Jesus' followers ought to throw the best parties, the most profound expressions of joy-filled fun, because I'm going to remind you, that's what heaven looks like today. There was a party today. Because the Bible says that every time somebody puts their trust in Jesus, a baptism that celebrates a new life in him, heaven throws a party today. So how about a little taste of heaven 
on earth. And let's be the heart of life church that's not known for what we reject, but is known for what we embrace, the good gifts from God. I'm supposed to live this way, and so are you. And here's the promise that we're given, and I will pray. Last verse, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teachings that you have followed. That's the promise. Let's pray. God, there are moments I recognize that there is so much work that needs to happen in my heart regarding what we're talking about today. And I can't help but believe that I'm probably not alone in that. God, some of us across this room who, God, maybe it's even just been a long time since we've just thought about, thought about gratitude, thought about thanksgiving, thought about the fact that who are we that you would give such gifts? God, families. God, a country with freedom. God, the opportunity to get an education, to drink clean water. God, I'm asking that you would make us a people. God, even this week who are intentional, God, about wanting to be grateful. God, wanting to demonstrate a thanksgiving. God, it, we, we get it. There are moments we get it and we can see how it changes our heart. God, we want our heart to look like yours. God, will you do that work in us this week? God, I pray for those who maybe have come here today that their concept of what it means to be right with you has always been about salvation by subtraction. And it's about them cleaning up their life and trying to get good enough. God, trying to look good enough that you would love them. And I pray today that that message, God, would be drowned out by the message that is true and real and life-giving. God, a message of your grace. God, a message that we come to you just like we are. God, a message that you love us even though undeserved. God, you love us. God, I pray today that your voice and your heart could be heard. God, that lives would turn to you in faith. God, thanks for your word. Thanks for your gifts. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. We're going to sing a little bit as we close today, so I want to invite you to stand with me if you would. And as we sing, it's a chance for us to, you can take some time to thank him. Um, we'll be over here on the side. If you need some prayer today, you got a question, maybe you need to trust Jesus today. Maybe you need to be baptized like you saw happen earlier today. Whatever it is, we'd be honored to visit with you. God bless you. And I thank you for listening today.